Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Not all moral issues are black and white. Some are gray. Now, the problem is that for some Christians, one of those gray issues is white, and to another Christian, one of those gray issues becomes black. Let me illustrate. The illustration that's used in the scripture is food. Now, food ought to be a white issue. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, it says that you can eat anything as long as it's received with thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But then he goes on to say, to him who considers anything unclean, to him it is unclean. And that's our problem. There is a gray issue like eating meat, eating meat offered to idols even, and it's gray. It can be white, yea, it ought to be white. Paul said, I'm convinced that all those amoral issues are perfectly proper before the Lord, but it can become black, and that's the problem. What do you do when this gray area becomes black for one believer? Now, that's where the tension is, and that's what the debate is over. A strong believer... That is, one who takes God at his word about what he said in this area will look at that problem and say, well, I have freedom in Christ. I'm not bound by the Mosaic institution. I can do that. And another believer says, but oh no, I believe that it is wrong. Now, how do you solve that debate? Well, there are two great portions of scripture in the New Testament that discuss this problem. One is 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. For three chapters, Paul discusses this whole problem of amoral issues. The second major passage in the New Testament that discusses it is Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 and going all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. So for three chapters in 1 Corinthians and a chapter and a half in Romans, the New Testament discusses the debate over our moral issues. If there is any one passage that gives us the solution to the debate over doubtful things, it is Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. After all is said and done, this is the solution to the problem. So will you turn with me to Romans chapter 15 
And let's begin reading at verse 1 and look at Paul's solution to the doubtful things debate. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind and one mouth glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a sense in which this is a long, cumbersome, complicated passage of Scripture. There are numerous quotations to the Old Testament. But in another sense, what's laid out here is rather simple. All 13 verses can be divided very simply into two parts. In verses 1 to 6, Paul speaks to the strong brother. Then in verses 7 to 13, the second half of the passage, he speaks to all Christians. There's another interesting little phenomenon that goes on in this passage that makes studying it rather intriguing and interesting. And that is that while there are two major parts to the passage, Paul does exactly the same thing in each of these two halves. In verses 1 to 6, he begins with an exhortation. That's in verses 1 and 2. Then he follows that exhortation with an example, which is in verses 3 and 4. And he follows that in the next two verses by entreating the Lord. He, in other words has an exhortation, an example, and an entreaty. That same identical pattern is followed in the second half of the passage, verses 7 to 13. He begins verse 7 with an exhortation, and before he gets out of it, he gives an example that goes all the way down through verse 12, and he concludes the passage in verse 13 with another entreaty of the Lord. So we're going to look at this passage we're going to have a little Bible study, but we're going to see that first Paul, first Paul speaks to the strong believer, and then he speaks to everybody. If you understand those two things, you will have what I think is Paul's 
solution to the debate over doubtful things. Let's begin with what Paul says to the strong. In verse 1 he says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. What he has to say to the strong is very simple and it's very clear. You ought to bear with the weak. Meaning very simply, you ought to accommodate the weak. Now this is nothing new. You have followed me as we've been moving through Romans. You know that at the end of Romans chapter 14, in verses 14 through 23, that in essence is what he said. This in a sense is a sum of all of that. That we are not to judge one another. We are not to cause another brother to stumble. Rather, we are to bear with them. We are to accommodate them, if you will, so that we don't hurt them. But what he goes on to say, another part of the exhortation is very critical. He says, and not to please ourselves. We are to bear with them. We are not to cause them to stumble. And if need be, we are to sacrifice ourselves. We are to sacrifice and not sacrifice them. We are to do that, as he goes on to explain, so that we can build them up. He says in verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor, not ourselves, for his good, leading to edification. So the options are very simple. I can do what I want to do. I can flaunt my liberty. Or I can sacrifice that. I can give that up for the sake of a brother. I can bear with him. I can accommodate him. I can build him up in the faith. So that's Paul's solution to this problem. That the strong who he concedes has the freedom to do these things in all moral areas should nevertheless not please himself. He should please his neighbor. He should sacrifice himself and not cause a brother to stumble. Now let me add just one little word of clarification. I do not think that Paul is saying appease a legalistic brother. I think he is teaching we should accommodate a weaker brother. And by definition, as I have explained before, a weaker brother who is someone who believes that something is wrong, but when he sees you do it, that will prompt him to do it. And if that's the case, Paul says, then don't do it. He explains that very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. On the other hand, there are legalistic brethren. We call them that. I'm not sure it's the appropriate title from a biblical point of view, but that's what we call them. Who come up with a list of things we ought not do. And they have no intention of doing them. And just because you do them doesn't mean they'll do them, but... If you do them, they'll sure give you a hard time. They will judge you and criticize you and condemn you. So Paul is not talking about appeasing a legalistic brother. He's saying accommodate a genuinely weak brother. That's his point. That's his exhortation. That's his solution to the debate over our moral issues. Simply put, bear with the weaker brother. Don't bury him. 
Now, I suppose at this point, what I would be tempted to say is, let me illustrate, and I would uh, tell a story. But in this case, Paul beats me to the punch, for Paul gives us an illustration. And I think what I'd like to do is use his. In the next several verses, he gives us this illustration. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul discusses the whole problem of amoral issues in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. In that passage, he gives an example of what he's talking about. It's the whole of 1 Corinthians 9. The point of that whole chapter is that you ought to give up your rights in the face of causing another brother to stumble. In this passage, his example or illustration is not himself as it is in 1 Corinthians, it's Jesus Christ. And his point is a little different. In 1 Corinthians 9, his point is that you ought to give up your rights. In Romans chapter 15, his point is you ought not please yourself. And he can think of no better illustration, nor can I, than none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, verse 3, Christ did not please himself. Now that ought to be immediately obvious. Jesus Christ did not please himself. Had he done that, he certainly would never have come to earth to die a cruel death on a cross. He would have stayed in heaven. That was a lot more convenient and comfortable than being born in a manger and being spit on by men. But he didn't please himself. Now, in order to reinforce this illustration, Paul does a curious thing. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, if you go to Psalm 69 and look at the context, what you will see is that there is a godly person who is representing the Lord and the reproach of the Lord fell on him from ungodly people. Point is that he didn't do anything wrong. He was representing the righteous one, the Lord God of heaven, and yet he was reproached for it. Now Paul lifts that passage from Psalm 69 and he applies it to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus not only didn't please himself, he sacrificed himself, but he got reproached for it in the process. So Paul's illustration of the way we ought to respond to the weaker brother is Jesus Christ. He adds, verse 4, For whatever things were written before, that is in the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. Now, he is simply justifying his use of the Old Testament. He's simply saying that all that was written for our, us and our learning. But in the process of doing that, I want you to notice, and this is very important, 
that whatever was written before was written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What does that mean? I am to read the Old Testament, see how they responded, so that I can have hope. Well, I take it that what he means by that is this, that in the Old Testament, the godly seed suffered reproach, but God promised Israel that there would come a day of glory. And obviously, that's true of Jesus Christ. He suffered the reproach of being identified with sinners and dying in their place. He wore the the crown, the the crown of thorns. But one day he will wear the crown of glory. Peter makes a big issue out of that in his first epistle. So that I take it that what he's saying is, You are going to bear reproach now if you do this. You're going to sacrifice yourself now. But there is hope. There is hope that you will be rewarded later. I think it's interesting that in the midst of this discussion in chapter 14, he says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he illustrates by using himself, he says that he runs, that he beats his body, that he disciplines himself, so that he can be rewarded. So his illustration of not pleasing yourself, but sacrificing yourself is Jesus Christ. And in the process of saying that, he indicates that there's hope in doing that, as well as reproach. And the hope is that someday you will be rewarded. Now having exhorted them to not please themselves, and illustrated it from Christ, He expresses a prayer. He entreats the Lord. He says in verse 5, And now may the God of patience and comfort grant you like-mindedness toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may have one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that in this prayer, He attributes to God the characteristics he just attributed to the Scripture. In verse 4, he talked about the patience and comfort of the Scripture. And now he talks about the patience and comfort of God. But his prayer is this. His prayer that you would be like-minded. That there would be unity. Instead of there being division in the congregation over some amoral issue that there would be unity, that the strong would be willing to bear with the weak and not cause his brother to stumble so that you would be like-minded toward one another. That's unity. And he goes on to say that you may be of one mind and one mouth. Glorify God. So that if there was unity and not division, God would experience the united praise of the congregation. As with one mouth, we would praise God. So that's his prayer. His exhortation is that you would, as the strong, bear with the weak and not please yourself. His example is Jesus Christ and his plea before the Father. His prayer, if you will, is that there might be unity 
so there might be united praise before God. Boy, that's so true, isn't it? Let a congregation fight over something, it doesn't matter what. <laughs> they can fight over the color of a wall, but let them start fighting over what color to paint a building or how to spend the money or something. And what's going to suffer? We aren't living in harmony and we aren't glorifying the Lord. So he says, look, get that problem solved so that with one mind and one mouth you can give praise to the Lord. That's the solution. He says to the strong, look, I know you've got your rights. I gave mine up. <laughs> First Corinthians 9, what he gave up was a salary. He went that far. He said, look at Jesus Christ. He gave up all the great glories of heaven. Now, you do like that. Don't please yourself so that God can be glorified. That's the solution. There was a man who um, was asked by his pastor repeatedly to um, teach a class of young boys. And he always made an excuse. He wasn't that faithful in going to church, frankly. And uh, his wife knew the problem, and one day they discussed it. His problem was that he used Sunday to play golf. And when they talked about it, he got convicted. It wasn't that she preached at him. He just realized how selfish that was. So he finally went to the pastor and he said, All right, I'll do it. Within a short period of time, he was teaching a class of 13 boys. Six of them trusted Jesus Christ. At that point, when the sixth one had trusted the Lord, the pastor met him one day and he said, let me ask you a question. Was it worth giving up golf on Sunday to teach that class? And the man hung his head. And he said, my only regret is that I didn't realize sooner that I ought to put others above myself. What he meant by that was the joy, the sheer pleasure that I've gotten out of teaching those kids, seeing them come to Christ, is so much greater than playing golf. <clears throat> Wondered why I didn't come to this sooner. Now that is precisely what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 14. That the kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's that when you sacrifice yourself, not please yourself for the sake of another brother, that there is the joy of the Spirit of God in your heart. And that's Paul's solution to this problem. That the strong should bear with the weak. That the strong should not please himself. That the strong should accommodate the weak so that God can be glorified and your heart can have joy and hope. But there's one other thing he says. Beginning at verse 7, going down through verse 13, he speaks to everybody. And this is the second part of the solution to the debate over doubtful things. The first is that the strong ought to bear with the weak and not please themselves. The second is that all believers, whether weak or strong, should receive one another. 
Look at verse 7. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, both the exhortation and the beginning of the illustration is in verse 7. The exhortation is very simple. Receive one another. You might recall, that's the way he started this whole discussion. Flip back a page and look at chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In introducing the subject, the first words out of his mouth was the one thing you have got to do is receive one another. So after this rather long discussion where he establishes several principles, he comes down to the conclusion and his final exhortation is receive one another. He is not addressing this any longer to the weak or to the strong. He is addressing it to everybody. The ultimate solution to this problem is that all of you live in harmony and you accept one another despite your differences, despite what you may think about some amoral issue, that you don't make those a barrier, that you don't build fences because of those kinds of things, but that you receive one another. Now again, as he did in the first part of the chapter, he gives us an illustration. And again, the illustration is none other than Jesus Christ. And this is powerful. Verse 7, Just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Here's the illustration. God received us. You know, if you thought about this very long, there isn't a whole lot you'd put up a fight about. God received us. Now you may think you're something, or you may think you're nothing. You may be strong and you may be weak, but the ground at the foot of the cross is level, folks. The simple reality is none of us should have been accepted. Amen. That's right. And God accepted me. That's awesome. He accepted me, and it wasn't based on my merit or my demerit. He just accepted me. Because his son died for me, and all I did to deserve it was trust in his son, period. And he gave me the gift of eternal life. I didn't earn that gift. I didn't deserve that, deserve that gift. If I got what I deserved, the last place I'd ever be is heaven. And when that's a reality and a realization in your soul, then the only logical conclusion is you ought to accept and receive every other man who has trusted Jesus Christ. If God accepted him, then who are you to reject him? Now let me tell you, by God accepting me, a sinner, what happened is it glorified him. What it glorified was his grace. And that's precisely what Paul is saying in verse 7. Christ received us to the glory of God. He exercised his grace in accepting me 
and that very act and that very fact glorified Him. And that's the illustration for why you ought to receive each other. Whether you're weak and accepting the strong or strong and accepting the weak, regardless of those differences, how about just exercising some good old grace? It's what God did. God accepted us, not because of our performance, but because of Christ's performance. Not because of what we did for Him, but because of what Christ did for us. Then you, by grace, ought to accept every other believer. Now at this time, he takes this illustration and he runs with it. Beginning at verse 7 and going all the way down through verse 12, he really amplifies and expands and elaborates on this illustration. Look at verse 8. He said, For I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. This is awesome. Jesus Christ received us to the glory of God, He says. Now He pursues this in depth. And He says, look, Jesus Christ became a servant to the Jews. He came as a Jew, identified with the nation, ministered to them, died at their hands. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though he was in the form of God, he became a man. In the form of a servant died the death of the cross. Now Paul explains that he did that for two reasons. Number one was to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Verse 8, the coming of Jesus Christ, of course fulfills all the covenants and promises made in the Old Testament. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. He is the consummation of the new covenant. So his coming as a servant to the Jews was to confirm the promises of God. The little word and at the beginning of verse 9 introduces the second reason why he became a servant that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now, folks, this is Bible study time, but I want, you to, I want you to see this. It's the key to this passage, beginning in verse 7. Look at the end of verse 7. Christ also received us to the glory of God. You see that little phrase? Now, verse 9 says that Jesus Christ became a servant to the Jews that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And that's the point of the passage. The illustration is that Christ did what He did in order to glorify God. He received us. He became a servant to the Jews so that God may be glorified. And the point is that we ought to receive one another. We ought to extend mercy and grace and love to one another so that we likewise can glorify God. That's the point that he's making in this passage. Only what he does is he piles one quotation from the Old Testament right upon another to show that God's intent was that the Gentiles 
might glorify God. He takes that point made in the middle of verse 9 and he hammers away at it. God intended for all, Jew and Gentile, to glorify him. So he says, verse 9, For this reason I confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's a quotation from Psalm 1849 where the king, the Messiah, says, I will confess to God among the Gentiles so they will sing among your name. That's one quote. Verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 32:43, where Moses invites the Gentiles to praise God with the Jews for the victory that they have had. Verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. That's a quotation from Psalm 117, verse 1. This is an, in that psalm is a, an invitation for all the Gentiles to praise the God of Israel. And finally in verse 12, he quotes Isaiah 11:10, And there shall be a root of Jesse. He shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. He is simply saying that there will come a Jew, the root of Jesse, the Messiah, who will rule over the Gentiles. That's their hope and glory. So he quotes four passages of Scripture. It's interesting that one comes from the law, Deuteronomy. Two come from the Psalms, which was the second division of the Old Testament, the writings. And then one comes from Isaiah, the prophets. It's almost as if Paul surveys the scene of the Old Testament and deliberately picks out verses from the three major parts of it according to the Jews. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And he says, look, the whole sweep of the Old Testament demonstrates that it was God's intent that the Gentiles glorify God. And that's his argument, and that's his plea, that we receive one another so that God would be glorified, that we receive one another by mercy and grace so that God can be glorified. God's grace can be glorified. He ends the second section with another prayer. And now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. His plea is that we receive one another, which means we may have to sacrifice our point of view and our perception, our comfort and our convenience. We sacrifice all of that. But that instead of walking around saying, Poor me, Look what I had to give up. No. Look at verse 13. God will fill you with joy and peace in believing. And you will abound in hope by the power that comes from the Spirit of God. So his prayer is the same thing I've been saying all along. He first mentioned it back in chapter 14. The kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, but it's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
And he's come back to that theme again and again. That in receiving one another, there is joy. Joy that is produced by the Spirit of God. Joy that comes in knowing that you have done the will of God for his glory. And that is peace and joy that only comes from the Lord. Trying to explain that to somebody that's never experienced this, trying to explain, like trying to explain to somebody that's never eaten an orange, what an orange tastes like. But man, just reading that makes all kinds of sense to me. I'd rather have the peace and the joy of the Lord than running over another brother. Amen? That's what he's saying. He's saying receive one another. Don't exclude one another. And his illustration is Jesus Christ received us. He didn't push us out. He accepted it. A psychiatrist has made the comment that if when you are doodling, you doodle in circles, you draw little circles, it indicates that you have a self-centered personality and disposition. Some of you look convicted. Now, whether you can verify that or not, I don't know. But this I know. Some people draw circles. And a circle does two things. It encloses people within my little group, and it shuts people out. Now, as Christians, we really don't have that option. We are required to receive one another And the great illustration is he received us so we ought to receive one another. We're back to that subject again, aren't we? We've got to love one another. I mean, we're going to have to spend all eternity with each other because he received us all. We might as well get in practice now, right? I mean, that's what he's telling us. Now, let me see if I can sum all this up. The solution to doubtful things is that the strong should follow the example of Christ by bearing with the weak, and both the strong and the weak should imitate the example of Christ and receive one another so that there will be personal peace and joy, so that there will be group unity and praise to God. It's a mouthful, isn't it? All those thoughts and themes are woven through this passage. Jesus Christ is the model. The Spirit of God is the means. And God the Father is the object of praise. So there is in this passage the Trinity. Well, what do I get out of it, you might ask? Oh, that's here too. You get peace and joy. What does the church get out of it? Unity. Harmony, and God gets glorified. There are two extremes on the subject. On one end, there's the strong brother who wants to flaunt his freedom. I have the right to eat that piece of meat. And Paul concedes, you do. Yeah, you really do. 
But he says, don't do that because you may cause a brother to stumble. The other extreme is to decide that you're going to please everybody. Meaning that if anybody anywhere who names the name of Christ has a conviction or a standard about something, you're not going to do that. And that's an extreme position as well. One the Scripture does not demand. And you can choose to restrict yourself in any area that you please. But don't put that on everybody else. In other words, Paul is saying, don't go to the extreme where you ignore believers and don't go to the other extreme so that you are immobilized by all believers. Now, just in case I haven't made this real simple and real clear, I'm going to conclude by spelling out for you three things that I think are the solution to the debate over doubtful things. And then I want to end by telling you a story. Number one, receive one another. He begins these, this discussion with that exhortation in chapter 14, verse 1. And he ends with the last paragraph saying, receive one another. Throughout this passage in Romans, he says, do not judge one another and don't despise one another. The point is, receive one another. I hope I've made that abundantly clear. Number two, the conclusion is, bear with one another. Don't please yourself and don't destroy a brother. Number three, I think you ought to educate one another. You see, the weaker brother is weak because he's weak in faith. He doesn't accept something God has said. So we ought not do something that's going to cause him to violate his conscience and destroy his spiritual life. But I do think we ought to educate him. Back in chapter 14, verse 19, it says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. You build him up in the faith. What does that mean? Teach him that he ought to believe God about this. That's what it means. So if a weaker brother is weak and he's in your presence, don't be a stumbling block, be a stepping stone to him understanding what God has said. So the three principles that sum it all up is, number one, receive one another. If a weaker brother is in your presence and you're a stronger brother, bear with him. And thirdly, if a weaker brother is in your presence, bear with him, all right, but educate him. Now let me illustrate. It's tough to illustrate these things, by the way, because the illustrations that are used in the first century don't exactly exist in the 20th century. And we don't have the case of meat offered to idols, as Paul had to face in 1 Corinthians. And I'm not sure the kinds of things that are mentioned in Romans are all with us today. So I have looked over the years for modern parallels to this, and one of the clearest I think I have found is this. In his book, How to Give Away Your Faith, Paul Little, who is now with the Lord, 
tells of um, going to a conference in New Jersey. And toward the end of the conference, he said to some of the other buddies around and a salesman who happened to be present, let's go over to Connie Mack Stadium and see the Phillies. They're playing the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, there was a Christian in the crowd who turned to Paul Little and said, you're going to do what? You're going to go to a baseball game? He was shocked. Paul Little said, I'd heard of a lot of taboos in Christian circles, but this was the first time I ever heard baseball banded. What's going on? And then he found out. He said, this fella made baseball a god. That he worked all winter so that he could have all summer free just to go to baseball games. That he had not missed a baseball game in 12 years prior to his conversion. That he had the personal batting averages and statistics of the players memorized back to 1912. Now, what do you do? What do you do? Do you say, oh, there's nothing wrong with baseball, and there isn't? Do you say, come on and let's go, but he thinks it is? The solution to that problem is you don't go to the baseball game, folks. You don't go to the baseball game. Does that mean baseball is wrong? No way. It just means when he's around, you don't put a stumbling block in his way. Now, what particularly fascinated me about this story is this. In his book, Paul Little goes on to say, and I quote, We also, they decided not to go to the ballgame, We also talked and counseled with him, and he gradually realized that not all Christians find baseball a problem. With his background, baseball will probably be a dangerous temptation to him for the rest of his life, this he knew. But later he also saw that he couldn't legislate for Christians who have no problem with the sport. It heartened us to see him to begin to mature in his attitudes. Later in the account, Paul says, once my salesman friend understood the situation, it would have been all right for me to take in the ball game as a recreational exercise. But it would still have been wrong for him to go, for in his case, doubt and other moral issues were involved. It's one of the finest illustrations of this issue I've ever seen. Paul Little, the strong believer, was willing to bear with the weak and to educate him. In the meantime, they received each other, and that, I say to you, brings glory to God. Let's pray. Father, teach us so that we can all be strong in the faith. In the meantime, give us the grace to receive one another, even though we differ so many things. May we learn to be like you, gracious, 
loving, and merciful toward one another. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.